Welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Jones Report. Tyler Jones here with you. So glad to have you with us today. Coming up here in just a few minutes, going to be joined by CNN White House correspondent Boris Sanchez. Got a long-ranging interview with Boris here for you in uh, just a little while from right now. Everything from the sports world to the political world, what it's like covering the Trump White House, to the days of LeBron James playing with the Miami Heat. It is a very fascinating discussion with uh, Boris Sanchez. You don't want to miss out on it here on today's edition of the Jones Report. And we have a short show for you today. It has been a crazy couple weeks, but I do want to get some things out of the way before we get to our interview with uh, Boris Sanchez. First off, thank you for all the birthday wishes. It has been an incredible week and I appreciate all the messages from all over. And uh, you guys are the absolute best. Uh, I can't believe that this is year 23 already. And it is just flying by. And I'm so glad to be with you guys along the way as we go through this process. So thank you so much for that. And uh, appreciate all those messages that I've received over the last week or so on that. And I got to say, it has been... Uh, a wild couple of days Tuesday I spent the entire afternoon and into the evening doing tornado coverage and I gotta say I am very very happy that there was not a fatality not even a single one in the EF4 tornado that came to Lawrence on Tuesday and I'm very grateful that we could do our coverage and keep you guys safe on KLWN and keep you safe and informed. Do it in a way that got your attention, but we weren't trying to scare you either, and it worked. And that you guys responded and listened well, and you trusted us on KLWN. And I firmly believe that on Tuesday we save lives with our coverage, with what we're able to do. So I appreciate you guys trusting us and giving us your time in the storm, letting us be your shelter from the storm on Tuesday night and the success I've heard from all sorts of people from all over that said hey we tuned into you guys uh, we appreciate you what you do it goes right back at you we do this for you this is a job where I serve you guys as I enter this 23rd year of my life I can't help but think of the job that this is of serving you guys that's what ultimately I do as much as I enjoy the job I do you know, covering sports and covering news and getting to be around the biggest events and interview all sorts of fascinating people and share my opinions on so many different things. At the end of the day, I am not defined by the job I have, but the person I am. And I hope to use this job and this platform as a way to serve you and serve the audience in some way, shape, or form. As I reflect on, you know, this birthday, I was thinking about this. For the longest time, I sat here thinking that I had to know the answers to everything. That every situation of some sorts that I had to know the reason why something happens and also the answer to that solution, to that problem, that I had to have the answers of some sorts. But now, as I sit back here on year 23, the Jordan year of sorts, I sit here and I don't have the answers for everything. I'm searching just like everyone else is. 
but I'll do so with patience. Do I want to know these answers? Absolutely I do. Do I want to know what that next step is, what I should do, and you know how I can help and you know figure things out? Absolutely I do. I want to know those things. But some of that stuff is not for me to know or for you to know. And so I sit here and I want to find out those things. I do, but I'm going to do it with a a patience that I didn't have before. And if the answer is not there for me, so be it. That's life. That's how things are going to be. And so as uh, as this birthday comes, and I appreciate, like I said, all the responses, uh, that's what I'm doing going forward is I'm going to continue to search for answers. But if I don't know it, I don't know it. And that's okay. And I think that's the main thing is that we have to find that searching of some sort, that if we get stale in one spot and just do one thing, we're never going to learn, we're never going to grow. And so as I enter this next year, I want to keep searching. I want to keep searching for things and be enlightened and not have all the answers, but continue to seek that truth and get that out to you. I looked at this Jordan year of sorts as a couple things in comparison. Some traits of Michael Jordan that I liked, you know, because obviously when you get when you're the greatest player of all time, there's some good things to take away. And when I look at this year, here's some of the things I want to be. The one of the things I want to be, you know, have full game performances. When it seems impossible, when the road gets tough, when a circumstance looks extremely difficult, power through and put up a great performance in whatever that is. I want to be ultra competitive. I think you guys know me. You know how I am. I am very competitive, and I don't want to lose that competitive edge. I want to go harder and give 110%. Not accepting failure. I think that's one of the things when you look at Michael Jordan, not making his varsity, you know, his, you know, getting cut from the high school basketball team his freshman year, didn't make the JV squad. He didn't give up. He didn't accept failure. I don't want to accept failure as just, you know, this is how it's going to be. If I accept failure, I failed you. Is this job I'm serving you? If I accept failure, I'm not only letting myself down, I'm letting you down. And then the last thing is making whatever I put my mind to happen. If I say I'm going to do something, do it. If there's a goal I want to accomplish, I'll do it. And I'll do it for you and as a service to you. And that's the job I do. That's the job I, I that's the life I want to live and to be that example and, and work for you. So that's the kind of reflections on this 23rd year of my life and I'm very happy very grateful to be in the position I'm in and just looking forward to see what that next step is to continue this journey and I'm so glad to have you with me on this journey of wherever this leads I hope you follow coming up is uh, Boris Sanchez from CNN got a great chat with him coming up in uh, just a moment hope you enjoy it as we talk from covering the White House to the sports world. Boris is from Miami, so he's got all sorts of stories of 
some great moments and some heartbreak as a Miami sports fan. We'll dive into that coming up next right here on the Jones Report. Joining us now on the Jones Report this week, he covers the White House for CNN. It is uh, Boris Sanchez making his debut here on the Jones Report this week. Boris, welcome in. Appreciate the time. What's happening, man? How's it going, Tyler? Glad to be here with you. Really uh, pumped that you invited me on to talk about sports and some of the things that we're both passionate about. Oh, yes, absolutely, Boris. Uh, first and foremost, we got to get to know you a bit before we dive in too much to several different things. You cover the White House for CNN, and uh, you had quite the path to get there itself. Tell us uh, how you ended up there uh, covering uh, the uh, the White House on a daily basis there for a, such a, a big network brand like CNN, which everybody knows worldwide. Sure. Well, I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be a journalist uh, from being seven years old watching local news where I grew up in Miami. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, a high school that uh, sort of had a technical educational aspect. So I got to learn TV production there hands on with cameras and editing and all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate in that my parents always pushed me to try to get good grades. I come from uh, very humble means and I was fortunate to earn scholarships, and I attended Syracuse University. I studied broadcast journalism and international relations. And then in broadcasting, it's not like a normal resume. You put together a tape, a video, a link of your best work, and then you send it out to different TV stations. So the first tape that I put together, uh, it was received by a station in Northern California in Chico, Redding. And that first tape that I sent out was the first one I got a response to, and they offered me a job, and I was in California Within uh, about two, three weeks, one-man banding, which means I, I was my own editor, my own cameraman, my own everything. I was essentially the custodian at that station because they needed uh, people who were young and ambitious and hungry to cover any blind spots, so I, I gladly did. Uh, in a couple of months, they made me the weekend anchor, and then after about a year and a half, uh, I was contacted by a station in Denver, Colorado, uh, to be a weekend anchor there, and I immediately jumped on the opportunity. I'd never lived in uh, either California or Colorado before, so all of this comes with a, a bit of a sense of adventure. But getting to Colorado was uh, amazing, just so many crazy stories. There's really uh, few places in the country that have as much diversity of personality and landscape and just the kind of stories you find there are insane. And so I was really uh, fortunate to, to go there. I was there for about three years. I covered the most destructive wildfires, the most destructive floods in state history. I covered the legalization of marijuana, uh, not to mention um, school shooting and just uh, other uh, big news. And that fortunately got the attention of some folks who work at CNN. And I began chatting with them about a potential opportunity. Uh, They hired me in June of 2015 to work out of their New York bureau as a correspondent there covered a ton of different stories. And one of the things I I was able to get on was the campaign trail back in 2016. So I did some coverage of that uh, going around the country with Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Hillary Clinton and zigzagging uh, the political landscape following the candidates. From there, uh, they moved me to Miami for about a year. And I covered terrorist attacks, destructive hurricanes. So I, I got a ton of experience in a very short amount of time. And because of some of the political work I had done a cam- on the campaign, when 
uh, a position opened up at the White House uh, with President Trump, who I had covered during the 2016 campaign. Uh, they thought of me, and I've been doing that since about June of 2017, and it has been quite the ride. I've gone all over the country uh, with the president. I've covered him internationally in Canada and Japan. And, you know, it's it's a really interesting beat in that you never really know what you're going to be talking about because the story's constantly changing, often just based on his Twitter feed. Isn't that crazy how that, that we've gotten to that point where that's the case? And, and it changes by just the hour, too. I mean, you, you don't even know what you're going to expect to cover every day, it seems, let alone every hour, just uh, as far as uh, following where where he goes and some of the things he does. It's uh, it's pretty interesting, I imagine. Quite fascinating. It's got to be to cover. We're going to talk mostly sports today, but on just this one thing on the political front, uh, Boris, I mean, co- covering this White House and you know politics as a whole right now, it's almost got to be like covering a sport of some sorts, just with how fascinating it is. Everything changes. Everything's so competitive. It's it's almost like a sport in itself somewhat. Uh, it has, and, and both sides are certainly competitive, and, and you see it even within the parties. I mean, obviously, we're going to see uh, primaries coming up soon for 2020, and I'm certain that it's going to get... Uh, aggressive and there's going to be quite a bit of trash talk. Um, but, you know, it's important to remember to take a step back and realize that at the end of the day, as Americans, we should all be on the same team. Uh, one of the things that I do love the most about this White House specifically is how much this president loves sports and values sports. Uh, I think he uses sports, specifically golf, in a diplomatic way. I mean, obviously, he's a huge golf fan. He owns courses all over the world. He watches often on TV. He's a huge fan of Tiger Woods. He bestowed him with the Medal of Honor. Um, but, for example, foreign leaders like Shinzo Abe know that if they get President Trump on the golf course, they can have a conversation with him in a way that you can't with the typical politician sitting in an office somewhere. You know, So he's gone golfing with Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul and all these other politicians that he's historically had disagreements with. And often what you find is that after they spend time bonding over the sport that the president loves the most, arguably more than just about any other president in history, it creates a dialogue. And that is vital at a a point in history where, as you talked about, we're, we're so divided in this kind of competition in politics. Well, and, you know, just in the business world, it's so important. You know, the game of golf can be, in the sense of making deals, you're seeing that in that same way translate to this White House. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, you you were just in uh, Japan, out in uh, Tokyo with the uh, president, and uh, following what was going on there. T- tell me about that experience. What was it like just seeing Japan and, and soaking all that in firsthand? It was incredible. It was one of the, the most interesting experiences of my life because, uh, there are so many aspects of Japanese culture that do not directly translate to American culture. It really is uh, one of the most colorful places I've ever been. And uh, one of the things that, that really struck me that I got to experience was uh, a day of sumo wrestling. So the, the sumo wrestling tournaments there are done six times a year, and they're about two weeks long, uh, 15 matches between the highest-ranked sumo wrestlers a day, and President Trump got to experience the very last day, once the competition had already really been decided. But earlier in the week, I got a chance to go, and you just see the passion on the faces of the fans. I'm talking about hundreds of school children 
losing their minds for these sumo wrestlers who are like rock stars. There were people lined up outside of the arena for blocks just to yell and get a glimpse of these guys. And it's not like it is in the United States where, you know, they have a secret exit in the arena and a car pulls up and nobody ever sees them. This is, they, they literally walk back to their stable. Like they don't have special transportation. So they're, they're walking amongst the people. And like I said, school children, senior citizens, everybody is losing it. And it's not, it's not just about the spectacle of the sport, these two enormous strong men you know, battling like offensive linemen in the center of this tiny ring. But it's also the ceremony and the ritual. A lot of it is based on Shinto, which is the traditional Japanese religion, and some of the practices uh, that they do before they actually uh, match up against each other uh, are really just fascinating to watch. And it's really interesting. They, they, it takes them about five minutes uh, to go through all those rituals, to go through all the ceremony before they actually square off against each other. And usually the matches only last about ten seconds. So it's really ceremonial. It was fascinating. I, I was so privileged and fortunate to be able to experience that. Was there any American sport or event that compares, you know, comparison-wise to what you saw there of uh, of just the the atmosphere and the activity around? It? Is there anything similar what you've seen in the states compared to what, what you saw there? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I would, in terms of the spectacle, uh, you could say that it's sort of a cousin to professional wrestling, but it's, it's not orchestrated there. There, you know, there isn't a sumo wrestler taking a microphone and pumping up the crowd. It's not like that, but it is, it is physically impressive what these uh, guys can do. It's not like football though, because I, I compared it to two offensive linemen with, with football. It's, it's almost like warfare. There's a strategy, there's a game plan. There are players that are, specifically efficient at doing one thing, whether it's, you know, receiving or, or throwing the ball or running. Here, it's really intimate because you can sort of see every detail of this one-on-one matchup and and just the power, the combination of power and technical uh, ability. I, I mean, maybe in boxing, but, but even there, there, there's also kind of a, a different uh, atmosphere it, it it's it's like a mix between boxing, football, and professional wrestling is the best way I could describe it. That sounds awesome. I, I got to see this for myself firsthand. That sounds like a, a great experience, Boris. Uh, you're you're a big Miami sports fan, being from there and some of those teams. Oh, yeah. uh, t- tell me uh, some some of your favorite memories. I imagine that run of LeBron and the Big Three had to be some of the, the best moments that you saw down there in uh, Miami when uh, gr- growing up and, and seeing that uh, Miami sports scene down there. Yes, absolutely. The LeBron era was so great for uh, Miami sports. Uh, you know, the Heat, to me, are everything. Uh, but even more uh, meaningful to me than the LeBron era was that 2006 Miami Heat Championship, uh, the one where Dwayne Wade was finals MVP. And really, it, it's not even about Dwayne Wade. It's about Alonzo Warning. Because when I started watching the Heat, when I was a, a young kid at like 10 years old, when he was first traded to Miami in 95, uh, I instantly became a huge fan. I'd, I'd always loved basketball. And they could not get past the Chicago Bulls first. And then it was the New York Knicks. We lost four years in a row to the Knicks in the playoffs, even when we had higher seeds. There was one year where we had the one seed, the Knicks were the eighth seed, and we lost to them. 
And I just, I, I cried. I couldn't take it. It was so emotionally devastating for me. And then, of course, soon after those runs, Alonzo Mourning had, uh, he was faced with a crippling kidney disease. He was told he would never be able to play the game again. He effectively retired. Then he came back and he bounced around to different teams before eventually landing back in Miami. And then he became this huge part of this championship for us. I remember in game six against Dallas, he put up in about 14 minutes, I think it was like eight points, six rebounds, seven blocks, just, you know, basically laying it all out on the line. And it it inspired me, you know, being a, a young guy and everything to realize that no matter what obstacles are put in front of you, work, dedication, perseverance, relentless effort will get you over the hump. And to me, I mean, I, it, I was, I was verklempt watching Alonzo Mourning holding that trophy because I never thought it was going to happen. I still remember, even though I was very young, just how big it was at the time when Shaq got traded to the heat of just all the media attention around that of him leaving a great situation of the Lakers and joining the Miami Heat, a young team that was on the rise just a play or two away. Do you remember kind of that that atmosphere and kind of the talk around that that town at the time when, when Shaq showed up? That that was one of the 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 huge one of the biggest things that happened uh in the in the two thousands in the NBA and really was uh, the start of something special for the Heat there. No question. I mean, you, there's so many ways to dissect the Shaq trade. I think first and foremost, it comes down to Pat Riley being who he is. Uh, that trade doesn't happen without somebody like that at the helm. And it, it speaks to how in any organization, whether sports or, or professional or, or anything like that, in order to be successful, you have to have somebody who sees the big picture and who's willing to really roll the dice. Um, if you recall, you know, that season – uh, the, the season before the Heat had lost in the Eastern Conference Finals, in the 06 season, Stan Van Gundy was our coach, and we started off uh, in, in, a, in some shambles. We didn't do that well at the beginning of the year, and then Pat Riley essentially intervened and stepped in as head coach and guided the Heat the rest of the way. And if you listen to you know what players on that team, like Shaq had said before, it, a lot of it just comes down to belief it's not like pat riley had x's and o's that stan van gundy didn't have it's just that he motivated this group of players that had been that had maybe had some success in the past but that had difficulty getting over the hump getting back to the mountaintop Shaq being one of them i mean one of the the most interesting thing about that specific era of the nba to me is more about Shaq's departure from the lakers and what could have been you know, a dynasty to rival what we're seeing now from the Warriors and just that ego got in the way and it ended up being very beneficial for me. So I'm not going to complain about it being a Heat fan. Right, right. You got a championship out of it. It's all good uh, as, as far as that goes. But Dwayne Wade being a part of that championship and then the run that he was on with uh, LeBron and now this past season finishing up his last season with Miami. Boris, kind of put into perspective for us, how much does Dwayne Wade mean to Miami and to uh, Heat fans like yourself? I think there's a very limited number of uh, athletes in South Florida sports history that mean more to the community than Dwayne Wade. I think you've got Dan Marino, uh, Don Shula, Pat Riley, and then maybe a couple of guys from the 72 Dolphins. Um, but you can't, you can't compare the amount 
uh, of hope and economic prosperity that having somebody like Dwayne Wade has brought to an area of Miami. Specifically, I'm thinking of where the arena is located and just north of there. You know, having that kind of energy uh, really instills hope. And and my favorite aspect of Dwayne Wade, he's of course my my favorite player aside from Alonzo Mourning, is is the amount to which he gives back to the community, the programs that he's been a part of, and uh, you know his his outreach, uh, even to victims of the Parkland shooting, for example. It's not just about economics; it's also about recognizing that sports is an important outlet to those who are suffering or, or overcome by stress. It's, it's such an important um, part of the fabric of life and the fabric of our society. And I think um, as a Heat fan and as a, as a South Florida sports fan, we were very lucky to have somebody like Dwayne Wade set an example for, uh, for the community and, and to take an interest in things that, you know, he didn't have to take interest in. Right, right. It, it seemed like Dwayne Wade was bigger than basketball for Miami uh, from an outside perspective. That's what it seems like with Dwayne Wade and, and uh, you know, love to see what he's going to do next because I'm sure he's going to have plenty of opportunities, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, speaking of LeBron, we, we mentioned him a second ago. In, in that situation with the Lakers, Boris, that, that's some uncharted territory that, that he and uh, the Lakers are, are going through right now of, of just trying to figure out you know what to do you know in Cleveland this past run you know they, those were some very good teams he was disappointed with them not winning the NBA championship and still getting to the finals the heat was a great run of course what, what do you make of what's going on there with LA and LeBron right now I mean this is uh this is a, a wild situation uh involving LeBron and the Lakers and kind of going head-to-head with management right now it seems well, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I don't cover the Lakers. I, I, I don't have sources that could give me inside information about what was going on behind the scenes. So this is purely just going off of what I've read, the work of others and the relationship between uh, Magic Johnson and Jeannie Buss and kind of the, the state of, of play uh, within the organization. It just sounds like they were being led by a pair of guys that didn't really have a ton of experience trying to lead a team and some of that leads to making very minor mistakes, what some would perceive as mistakes that ultimately can be costly. And I think a a big part of LeBron is everything that comes outside of basketball, his personal friendships, people that the team ultimately employs to make him happy, access to, um, you know, flights for his agent and, and that sort of thing not only creates distraction, but it, it is a symptom of a structure where perhaps winning is not the most important thing. And I think part of the reason that LeBron went to Miami to begin with was to develop that kind of culture and to be part of that sort of culture. And now that he's won, I don't know that his priorities necessarily are winning at all costs. And I think you saw that in the decision to go to Los Angeles they didn't really have uh, a foundation in place. They do have talented young players, but it's not like they they were in a position to really put him in a competitive place to really right away compete for championships. So I think to some degree he put himself in a difficult position, and he's the kind of player, well-earned, I should say, very well-earned, 
who can influence the direction of an entire organization in a way that the vast majority of players cannot. The question is, you know, is he better at being a GM or is he better at being a basketball player? And when those two sort of blur, it becomes difficult to really focus on basketball and what matters most when you lose the attention, the enthusiasm of half the guys on your team because they know they're getting traded. You know, or that you're going to right. try to trade them. Right, exactly. That's that's a tough dynamic, to uh, say the least. There. What, one more thing on the NBA. Boars, are, are you getting any time at all? I know you're so busy. Are you getting any time to watch these NBA finals uh, and see this uh, this Warriors Raptors series? That intrigue you at all? Yeah, absolutely. I honestly did not think Toronto was going to do as well as they did in Game One. I uh, I'm impressed by the defense that they're playing. I don't think that the Warriors have faced this kind of defense yet uh, in, in the West. And honestly, I think the dynamic that you have with somebody like uh, Mark Gasol laying the foundation of that defense, somebody like Kawhi Leonard with his huge reach, his huge wingspan, his huge hands, who can actually defend uh, extremely well if KD comes back. And then you have uh, Pascal Siakam, who really – gives Draymond Green a headache. You know, what What I think Toronto is really going to have to focus on, obviously, Seth Curry, sorry, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and chasing those guys around screens all day, that I think is, is more troublesome than anything that the Warriors front court can do. I think the big question is just what happens when KD returns because the way the way that things stand now, I think a showdown between him and Kawhi uh, I, I don't know who wins. I honestly don't know who wins. I think Kawhi Leonard is just ridiculous in every aspect of the word, but I think KD just has, he's been there before and he's been successful being the best player on his team with, you know, an unprecedented accuracy for someone that size, right? So right. I, I think it's tough. I think it's tough. Yeah, I, I think these are the two best players in the world between Kawhi Leonard and, and Kevin Durant. I know uh, LeBron, you know, is, is still great, but I don't think that he's uh, as good as uh, Durant or uh, Kawhi Leonard is right now. And it'd be great uh, for the sport just to have these two go toe to toe, Kawhi and Kevin Durant. I want to see KD come back and make this an interesting series. See these two go head to head. That'd be fun to see, uh, no doubt about it. Let's uh, let's talk some football now. Uh, you're you're a big Dolphins fan. You buy in uh, Josh Rosen. What do you think of that? That move uh, using a uh, you know trading that second round pick to bring him into uh, Miami. I think it's uh, low risk, potentially big reward. Uh, I don't know that the Arizona Cardinals had the kind of offensive line that could really seriously give us an idea of what Rosen is capable of. And I think that trading down to a lower pick in the second round to pick up uh, Josh Rosen is kind of a smart move because look, we're not expecting this team to win a Super Bowl, let alone make the playoffs this year. So it, it, I don't think that we're really blowing anything up by giving this guy a shot. And he seems uh, like a smart player. I, I like everything that he said. Simultaneously, I like everything that I've seen from Brian Flores so far. I think the Dolphins have, have been plagued by having these sort of faux rebuilds where they, they give the impression that they're cleaning house, but they don't really clean house. I think they finally have taken steps to really change the dynamic in the front office, and I think that will bode well uh, once the season starts. I'm not sure that, like I said, they're, they're going to 
have even a winning record this year, but it looks like the building blocks are being put into place, and I honestly couldn't ask for more after so many years of losing. I don't think we've won a playoff game in, like, I think I was 10 years old the last time we won a playoff game. It's been a minute uh, for the Dolphins, but uh, speaking of that time period, you, you mentioned how much you got to enjoy Miami basketball with the Heat and such. Uh, I have a conspiracy theory uh, in regards Uh-oh. to the Dolphins, Boris. See what you think of this. I, I have felt for the longest time that if the Dolphins would have followed through and signed Drew Brees, Nick Saban and Drew Brees would still be with the Dolphins right now, and they would have at least one Super Bowl title if they would have <laughs> found a way to make that Listen, work. Listen, Drew Brees versus Dante Culpepper in free agency still is something that uh, my friends and I talk about all the time. And and it wasn't – I mean, we didn't just whiff on Drew Brees in free agency by going after Dante Culpepper. Uh, disclaimer, though, obviously, Brees had shoulder surgery before free agency. Culpepper had knee surgery. So you, you go with the guy whose arm is healthy. So I, I, don't, I don't fault them for that necessarily. I do fault them because we whiffed on him in the draft, and we could have drafted him the same way we drift on Matt Ryan, for example – um, but as far as Nick Saban is concerned, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are certain coaches who are built for different atmospheres, and I don't know that Saban gets the same quality play out of his players in the NFL as he does in, in college. And it's unfortunate because I think he is a fantastic leader, and I think he's just – I mean, I, I my girlfriend is – Alabama all the way. I was very fortunate to go to the Iron Bowl last year with her and just absorbing all of the, the folklore about Nick Saban. I, I think he's, he's a fascinating leader. I love his book. I love his outlook. But I don't know that it translates as easily to the NFL where you have so many competing agendas on a roster, let alone with the front office and you know the, the ticket sales and, and all that sort of stuff. I think once you get outside of what you can call the purity of, of the college game, it, it gets a lot more complex. And I'm not sure that he would have been successful with the Dolphins, even if we had had Drew Brees, even though I think we would have had more success than we had had we been fortunate enough to get Drew Brees once out of the two times that we had a shot at him. Right. It wouldn't have been something. It's uh, one of those things that we'll never know. And then also you think about just how much college football would be different now. If Nick Saban never leaves the Dolphins, uh, Alabama would have actually hired Rich Rodriguez, uh, is what who was their second second in line, and we know that Rich Rod wasn't that great of a coach. Uh, I mean, you could you look at that how different college football would be of, of where the sport is right now. Uh, I mean, they dominated for so many years. the The entire landscape, the entire country, and college football would have been different if uh, Nick Saban doesn't leave the Dolphins. Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, they're they're a million different permutations that, that we can sort out. For the Dolphins, since Saban's departure, I'm not sure that we've had as competent a coach. Uh, you know, and, and that's not to say that the coaches that we have had were terrible. It's just that you have somebody who clearly is a winner and who has that kind of, who comes with that kind of pedigree. For the Dolphins, it's, it's meant quite a few headaches. And that, and that goes back to something I mentioned before with having a front office or, or having an, an ownership that is focused on one thing, winning and building a strong team, not necessarily just ticket sales or, or having 
you know, uh, celebrity owners or, or the sort of things that the Dolphins have, have gone after. I think one of the most telling quotes from Stephen Ross, the Dolphins owner, over the last few years was, the Dolphins are the best team in the NFL in every regard except on the football field. And I think that tells you everything you need to know right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that does say a lot right there. A couple more things that we'll let you run, Boris. Uh, being from Miami and everything, how big is uh, – is Dan Lepetard and the Lepetard gang down there, Poppy and everybody? Is that a a, a big deal as as it it seems to be? I mean, they, they take they've taken off so big in in you know across the entire country, but it all started uh, right there with uh, with the family there in Miami. How, how big is the the Lepetards there? Huge. I mean, it's uh, it, it suffice to say, I, I used to listen to it all the time when I lived in Miami when when he was local and, and I don't think he was syndicated as broadly as he is now. Um, and I, I think he's brilliant. Uh, you know, he, he has a similar uh, story as my family does and sort of seeing him succeed in a lot of ways is an inspiration. And, you know, I think he's hilarious. And it, I, I, as I said before, I think perseverance and having that, that bit of talent that you then craft into something bigger I, I, you know, look, I look up to Dan Levitard in so many ways uh, because of his ability to, to relate to just about anybody and, and to produce interesting, funny content, you know? Right, right. Yeah, he does a terrific job. I love how he gets his dad involved, Poppy, and just the whole gang and stuff. I mean, they, they do incredible work down there, uh, to uh, say the least. Boris, before we let you go, what is one thing that most folks don't know about you? Well, this is something I think most people probably don't know about me, or mostly that they just wouldn't expect, and that's that I often uh, go and report at, at Trump rallies where we get yelled at and, and all sorts of stuff. And, and I actually love going to those rallies, uh, even though sometimes they're they're they can occasionally be hostile and, and yelling. And there are people who have said very nasty things to me. I candidly enjoy it because most people are actually very kind and very polite and even though they may think that my organization is uh not the best in the world uh i've had great connections with people just sort of asking them why they're at this event why is it that they support the president and and getting to know who they are i think one of the big problems that we have in the country right now isn't necessarily that we disagree about things it's just that often we lack empathy it's hard for us to really connect with someone who we disagree with because we don't always ask why it is that they feel a certain way, why it is that they're afraid of certain things, why it is that they want to see a change in Washington. So I, I think that is something probably people wouldn't know that I actually enjoy going and getting yelled at <laughs> by hundreds of people at a time. <laughs> I, I went to one. I, I covered one rally when he was in Topeka, and uh, I don't think I've heard s as much Guns and Roses in one night as I did that, that evening. <laughs> the, the, the playlist never changes. There's Guns and Roses, there's Elton John, there's uh, Village People, and then there's Lee Greenwood to bring in President Trump. <laughs> It's always the same. I kid you not. I know those songs by heart at this point. Oh my gosh, that that reminds me of uh, you know being being a Thunder fan, then you know because being from there originally, and and I I'm still not over their one finals appearance when they lost to, to you guys, the Miami Heat, uh, that year. I, I still think that KD was fouled by LeBron in that game. By the way. Um, <laughs> 
they still finish every game after a win with taking care of business. And I'm like, of all songs to pick, you guys choose this. I mean, it, it goes Even along with this. Uh, when they win, uh, after every win, oh, okay. it's taking care of business, um, which just blows my mind of all things. You know, it's got to be the most random song uh, to choose from. But then when I hear uh, these these Trump rallies and some of the music that's played there, I'm like, let's let's get a little more variety here, folks. <laughs> I mean, as far as the Fender goes, you know, it, it, it you can see their decision making and some of the players that they've lost. And, and at the time, it, it maybe seemed like the right decision to make to try to shed some salary. Overall, though, I, I got to say it's it's a little bit painful to know that three of the last MVPs were on the same team, and they, you know, at a very young age, and they could have had quite. The run, uh, it's just it's just unfortunate. But I mean, you, you guys are still competitive. You still got, you know, Russ and and Paul George had an MVP caliber season. Uh, the big question is, what do you do next? You know, do right. you blow it up. How do you rebuild? Necessarily, it's it's tough. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. I've been very frustrated with this team for uh, quite some time and some of the decision makers, but uh, that is a whole other topic for another day. Boris, we are out of time. Appreciate you joining us, man. Where can people connect with you and see all your work? You're all over CNN all the time. Half the time I turn on, I see you or uh, or Caitlin or you know or Jeff or any of those guys for the White House. You guys are there all the time, and then you're all over social media covering this as well. Where can people connect with you? That's right. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's Boris, B-O-R-I-S underscore Sanchez, S-A-N-C-H-E-Z. I'm also on Instagram. Usually I uh, give a pretty good look at where we're uh, following the president, whether it's at the White House in New Jersey and Florida, Mar-a-Lago, or any of his, at this point, hundreds of campaign rallies across the country. Uh, And I think that account is just Boris Sanchez on Instagram or Boris Sanchez TV on, on Instagram. Uh, always happy to answer questions uh, or you know show people where we are. So feel free to reach out anytime. Always happy to have a good conversation. You probably never pass up the Mar-a-Lago trip, do you? Oh, never. Oh, no, no, no. I I often go early. <laughs> I use my days off to go early so that I you know can uh, get some sunshine. Obviously, during winter when he visits. It's key to get out of the freezing rain of Washington D.C. That's great, Boris. Appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, man. We'll uh, catch up down the line. Tyler, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Big thanks to Boris Sanchez for joining us here on the Jones Report today. Tyler Jones back here with you now. Thomas Bridges will be back with us next week. Let's uh, talk a couple more things before we get out of here today. NBA Finals. Uh, We mentioned it with uh, Boris there just a few moments ago. Uh, Game one with the Warriors and the Raptors was all about Toronto. And you could tell right away just how special game one was for Toronto. The atmosphere around that place, the electricity was in that building. It was outside that building. You could feel the entire country of Canada during the pregame. When they sang O Canada, that was one of the most powerful national anthem performances I've ever seen. Not only having the tenors do what they did, but the way the crowd got into it, you could tell right away there was something different about that atmosphere on Thursday night for Game 1 of the NBA Finals that we had not seen in uh, the entire NBA playoffs to this point, how special it was for Toronto. And they wrote off that. 
there was an instant energy. We talk about home court advantage all the time. And I feel like that Toronto, the fan base, gave the Raptors such a home court advantage early on that it was pretty evident, pretty clear, that everything was setting up for them going their way to have a big-time performance like they did, that the fan base was doing their part even more so, and it was up to Toronto to capitalize, and they did. The thing that's intriguing about this series, when you look at the talent level of these two teams, let's throw in Kevin Durant and DeMarcus Cousins just for all intents and purposes. The starting five of the Warriors, all four, five of those guys, including DeMarcus Cousins in this case, let's say he's a starter, is better than all but one player on the Toronto Raptors starting five and that being Kawhi Leonard. There is a talent mismatch. But what's different about this series, compared to every other series in this playoffs for the Golden State Warriors, and really every series that Golden State has been a part of since they lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers a couple years back with LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, is that they are playing an elite defense Portland a very good team a very good backcourt tried to play Golden State's game and beat them head-on with their guard play and that played right into Golden State's hands they ate that for lunch and breakfast and dinner and they feel that to victory that was easy for them they get these few days off and you take on a Toronto team That is a defensive first bunch. They held Golden State, folks, to, I believe it was 108 points in game one. 109. And it felt like 93. This was incredible, the defense that Toronto showed. And I would expect to see more of it this series. They're such a defense-first team. They have really good defenders. You know, Kawhi Leonard is the best defensive basketball player of this generation. Marcus Saul is a heck of a defender as well. That defense, you could tell Golden State was not ready for what they saw, what, you know, what, what was coming for them. Because they played such offensive-driven teams It's almost like, oh, wow, we're actually having to play a team that plays good defense. It was almost shell-shocking to them of some sorts that this was an actual thing that goes on. But sure enough, it was. And so this is where, you know, it's like the NCAA tournament. We always talk about with the NCAA tournament that the best team doesn't always win. A lot of times it comes down to matchups and who you match up well with and who you don't match up well with. And in the case of Golden State and Toronto, why Toronto's up 1-0 in this series and why they have a shot to pull off this series, whether Kevin Durant plays or not, is the matchup. It's the scheme. Kawhi Leonard, this scheme, if it's used effectively, if they can play like they did on Thursday night this entire series, 
they win this series handily because of the system, because of the miss, the matchup that they are exploiting, then they win this series. Golden State has to adjust accordingly. They're the more talented team, but they're going to have to make adjustments. If they don't, the Nick Nurse is going to be holding the NBA championship instead of Steve Kerr. And much like when Cleveland beat Golden State the first time around, that uh, that second time actually rather that they faced, Golden State was the more talented team. Cleveland found a mismatch, exposed it, and won with it. And Golden State didn't adjust. Toronto has that opportunity. They found a mismatch. They've exposed it. Now can they continue to do so? I think Golden State, we talk all the time about the the layoff. That, you know, the, the time off, the rest that you get. I think that hurt Golden State, actually, being off for that many days. They were clearly rusty. They were not prepared after coming off a sweep to the Portland Trailblazers, coming off a sweep to a team that plays totally different than Toronto does, that they were caught sleeping. They weren't ready for that game one. Now, they have time to adjust. They are the better team. They certainly can win this series. But right now, Toronto is in great shape going forward, a lot better shape than what their talent level shows as well as what anyone had given them credit for or a chance for in this series, Toronto is in much better shape. And, you know, Golden State could still win this series in five games, could still win it in six games. But now Toronto has forced Golden State to recognize what they do, take them seriously, and adjust accordingly. And if they don't, they'll lose. So that right there is accomplishment in them in itself that Golden State cannot play their own style and just win. That Toronto has done something effective. That they have found a weakness in Golden State. They've exposed it. And now it's up to Golden State to see if they adjust. If not, Toronto's got a great shot to win this series. It's a whole lot more interesting NBA Finals than we've seen in the last couple of years. And that in itself is a success. So we'll see what Toronto puts together. Uh, The other thing, too, with Toronto is that Kawhi Leonard did not play great in game one. He played okay. And if Kawhi could step up a bit, Mark Gasol steps up a bit, Serge Ibaka, those guys, then you're really talking about, you know, hey, you played probably a B-minus-B game. And you won by almost double digits. Get those guys to play in their course and playing well defensively. You know, doing what you guys do best. And Toronto could be in control this series. So still a lot of basketball left to play. But a great job by Nick Nurse for having his team ready to go. And, you know, playing Toronto Raptors basketball. That's uh, something that should be recognized. And a great job nonetheless. Before we get out of here today, I know Thomas isn't here. He'll be back next week. But we still have a, a Tom Fullery story here for you this week. Uh, Old Town Road, this uh, very annoying song, which I got to tell you, 
It really depends on the day for me if I'm a fan of this song or not. Sometimes, you know, it's kind of catchy. You know, the old town road, you know, going to get my horse and, you know, ride it, whatever, how that song goes. Um, Well, apparently, things have taken a bit too far. Here's a story out of New Hampshire, Dateline, New Hampshire. The Mulberry Police Department in New Hampshire wants people to stop bringing their horses to Old Down Road. Since the popular song from Little Nas was released, people have been bringing their horses to Old Down Road to create a music video. The Mulberry Police Department sent out a message on Facebook Sunday saying, Please stop taking your horses down our Old Town Road. This quiet neighborhood off Troy Road is not a suitable filming location for your amateur rap videos. For our older followers, please disregard this pop culture reference and continue your uh, pony activities as usual. That is great. I understand the complaints, especially the amateurs that think that they're going to make the next Hollywood motion picture of some sorts. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear on this, folks. Go ahead and make make your own video of some sorts. Don't, don't copy off of what this has already been done. Go do your own thing. You know, you, you if you got the time to go bring a horse, surely you can come up with a better idea and a better song than trying to copy something that's already been popular. Nobody cares. I do find that funny that the city had to put this notice out there. I can understand their frustration, especially if it's known for being a quiet neighborhood. You want to keep things that way. That's a good laugh. That's a good time. But come up with something else. If you had the time to bring up a horse, to get a horse involved in a music video, write your own damn song. My gosh. Goodness, people. Is that that difficult? I don't think it is. I don't think so. But anyways... Got to run. Big thanks to uh, Boris Sanchez for joining us. And I will see you right back here on the uh, Jones Report next week. Full show. Thomas Bridges back with me as well. And uh, we'll see you here on uh, the Jones Report coming up next week. Hope you have a great week. Make sure to subscribe to the show. iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify. Leave us a five-star review or don't leave us one at all. And uh, also on social media, at Tyler Jones Live, at TJ Media Group, Facebook.com forward slash Tyler Jones Live at uh, Tyler Jones Media Group on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram, uh, Tyler Jones Live and Jones underscore Report. And uh, we'll see you right back here next week. Have a great one, everybody. We'll see you right back here on the Jones Report. So long.